I'd like to start off the evening talk with a joke. It's a Buddhist joke. <laughs> so a Buddhist phones the monastery and asks the monk, can you come and do a blessing for my new house? And the monk replies, sorry, I'm busy. And the man says, well, what are you doing? Can I help you? And he says, I'm doing nothing, replied the monk. Doing nothing is a monk's core business, and you can't help me with that. So the next day, the Buddhist phones again and says, can you please come to my house for a blessing? And the monk says, sorry, I'm busy. And he says, well, what are you doing? And he says, I'm doing nothing, replied the monk. And then the man says, but that was what you were doing yesterday, said the Buddhist. He said, correct, replied the monk. I'm not finished yet. <laughs> so it relates a little bit to what we're not doing here. <laughs> you know, and maybe we're not finished yet. So this morning I started to invite you to look at this doer, the one who thinks it's doing something. Now, in this case, doing the meditation. And we can see how much we believe this idea that I'm doing it. And since I believe that I'm doing it, then it follows that, therefore, then I am responsible for everything that happens. So whether things are going well or things are not going well or, you know, looking around and it seems like everybody else is doing it well, then, but, but my experience proves that I'm not doing it well or you look around and you're quite sure that you're doing it better than everybody else. <laughs> However, wherever the scales tip at any given moment. But we, we so much believe in this idea. It's, it's, if, it's, if it hasn't really been challenged, this belief that it's I am doing all of this, then we just carry on believing that and then feeling the stress of all this responsibility. We can see how this sense of self can hijack anything. You know, it is a, it's a kind of, it can take, it can hijack any experience. As Sandy was talking this morning about these, this wonderful joy that was arising and, you know, a lot of humor and giggling and all of that. And then just because it's so pleasurable, you just want more, you know. Well, let's see if I can keep this going or, you know, get more of this pleasure, you know. It's like, yeah, give me more, <laughs> you know. And we can see that when we start to grasp on to anything that's beautiful, anything that's pleasurable, it's like we just want to drink it as much as we possibly can but then it ends, of course, like everything. And in some ways, we're a little bit exhausted <laughs> from trying so hard to hold on and to keep it. 
So this is that the sense of ourself gets involved with just about everything unless we start to really look more deeply at this, what's called a concept, this concept of self in Buddhist teachings. Buddhist teachings, this is the um, teaching on anatta, anatta, or uh, which is translated as selflessness or not-self, which I'll talk about tonight a bit. This is one of the three characteristics of existence. We explored anicca, or the characteristics of, of change, and how everything is fluid and transitory and changing, and that's a, a characteristic of the nature of things. And the characteristic of dukkha, this unsatisfactory nature because we can't hold on to any of it. So when we try, it's unsatisfactory, this constant unsatisfactoriness, unfulfillment or unreliability, this dukkha. And the third characteristic that is pointed to is the characteristic of anatta or selflessness. Because everything is changing and we can't hold on, it points to the fact that there is nothing solid. There isn't any uh, self-existing entity anywhere. Because when we look, we see that where, where is it? It's like everything is in this flux. Everything's in transition. Everything seems to be dynamic and fluid when we take a look. So this points to the characteristic of this selfless nature. What that means is when we say not self, it means that we can't find it anywhere. It's there's everything slips through our fingers, including this self that we take ourselves to be, that too will disappear. That too is going to be gone, just like everything else that is born and exists for some time in this universe. So the difficulty is that this is often not seen, these characteristics of existence. They're, they're not really looked into. They're not challenged. And so we assume that we live in this universe where there is these solid things, <laughs> are particularly human beings kind of walking through this time and space, and everything appears in this very conventional and solid way. And so one of the things that we begin to look at, which helps free up this sense of bondage and imprisonment and this sort of the way, the, even in the, the way the I takes responsibility for everything, as we start to examine the nature of reality more clearly, we, it helps us because we see directly, it helps us begin to let, let go of that grip the way we're holding on so dearly to the way this world appears, the way we hold on to the world. 
and yet we, this is one of the very profound things that we can begin to examine when we look at our own mind. We just turn that attention and we start looking at our own mind. I started my practice with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, um, many years ago. And one of, uh, Joseph had been a student of Manindraji, who is, was, a, was a very small um, little Indian man from Calcutta. And one of Joseph's favorite, t- favorite phrases that he would say a lot of the time that he got from Manindraji was, empty phenomenon rolling on. He would look around and that's what he would see, empty phenomenon rolling on. And it's become Joseph's favorite thing to say. (laughs) Some 30-some years later, it's still his favorite thing to say. (laughs) Empty phenomena rolling on. Another anonymous person said, Life is the ever-changing foam that floats upon the sea of silence. Life is the ever-changing foam that floats upon the sea of silence. So beautiful, you know, and it's when we come into a retreat like this where we are actually dropping deeply into the silence we start to feel more directly that sea of silence, feel and sense that sea of silence. And then there can be times where we just really perceive this dynamic change. Not only do we perceive it, sometimes we become that. And that's all there seems to be is just that sea of silence and the sea of change. We just feel that, we know that, and it's directly in our bones. And then our bones become (laughs) that foam. (laughs) So in these teachings, we look at this other characteristic of existence, this anatta. And and we see how easy it is to take these conditions of the mind. We see that we have a mind. We see that we have a body and that we have consciousness. As we start to wake up more, we're aware that there actually is a consciousness. And yet we take these conditions and think that they're mine or my or that's who I am, they're me. There's a way that we become the owner or the possessor of these conditions. This is who makes this is what makes up me my mind my body my consciousness and all the experiences that i have and this is who i am and really that's what's rarely questioned you know it's just the way things are right this is who i am but the problem is that because those some so many so much of what goes through the mind are repetitive patterns like 
planning and judgment and anger and resentment and jealousy and happiness and uh, different beliefs and assumptions that I have about myself that I'm unworthy or I'm not lovable or I'm not very um, smart or I'm not very successful in the world. All of those ideas and assumptions are what make up this thing and that I believe that's who I am. It's like whatever, whatever conditions are here, it's mine. It's me. It's who I am. And so then the way we perceive ourselves or know ourselves gets quite fixated. It's called this personality view. In the, in the Buddhist teachings, it's called Sakaya Ditti. It's this taking this group of mind and body conditions um, which is the Sakaya, this, this grouping, this grouping of these conditions and, and thinking that they're solid or separate from everything else and that's the ditti. Ditti is when you take a belief that is wrong view. It's not right view. It doesn't match with reality. So it's called Sakaya Ditti, this, this personality view which is perceived incorrectly because we think that it's me, it's mine or I, without having a sense that maybe it's different than that. Maybe who you are, maybe who you really are is much different than that. And so this is what we're wanting to explore. The Buddha says, it's one of the refrains that you hear a lot in the teachings, the Buddha says, seen as it actually is with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This is this this I am not. This is not myself. So you so that goes right through the teachings, you know, seen as it actually is, this is not mine. This I am not, this is not myself. So the interesting thing is that the Buddha doesn't say that these conditions don't exist. And this is sometimes where the confusion is. You know, in Buddhism, it's like, well, then things just don't exist. You know, like this, there's no self, which is very, it's, it's just a confusion. What the Buddha is saying, it's not self. It's not you. You, you can't own it. You, you can't possess your mind. You can't possess your body. You can't possess your experiences because they're always changing. That any time you try to grasp on or hold anything, hold your mind to be a certain way, your body to be a certain way, your experiences to be a certain way, your emotions, your happiness, your anything at all, it's going to change. It's not yours. If it was yours, maybe you'd be able to fiddle a little bit more. You know, maybe you'd be able to meddle with it all a little bit more, but it's not yours. It belongs to something much greater than you. You know? So the Buddha said it's not you, not self. It's not, you, you can't take ownership of these conditions. So the forms are not the problem. The fact that we have a mind, the fact that we have a body, the fact that we have experiences, that's just the nature. That's just what happens. The difficulty, and the Buddhism always comes back to this, is the dis difficulty is in taking ownership, is in the grasping, 
is in the holding, is it's a trying to manipulate and shape and uh, control these conditions that are out of our control, including this that we take ourselves to be. And you can see how much suffering this causes us. I mean, it's what, it's what comes up here on retreat when we see how much we want our experiences to be a certain way or we want our, the way we feel to be a certain way. We want our body to be in a certain shape, a certain condition. We want, we want, we want, we want. And then we get so disappointed, we get so disturbed when we can't have what we want. You know, we hear this again and again and again because this is really the kernel of the Buddhist teachings. This is really the kind of what it's all about. This is what we have to get our head around. <laughs> so it's sort of like we have to kind of keep driving it in, driving it in. This sense of ownership and what we try to take ownership of. Some of you have heard this lovely little poem from uh, Wei Wu Wei who says, why, why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a difficulty. <laughs> we keep getting slipped up. You know, it's like somebody keeps pulling the rug under our feet, you know. Like, how come there, as I was speaking the other night, how come there isn't this solid ground? There's supposed to be, right? That's how it's supposed to be, but it isn't that way. So the formations, the conditions are not the problem. What's actually arising, the way things arise, the way we manifest, the way we come into existence, we're not a problem. <laughs> Just these arising conditions, we're, 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 you're manifesting like this today. You're manifesting like this in this hour. Your, your experiences are like this in this 10-minute period. <laughs> you know, this is the way things are arising. These conditions come into being and then they pass away. This is not a problem. This is the nature, the nature of form, formations, formations of mind, the formations of body that arise and pass within the, uh, the, the vast space of consciousness. This is the way it is. But the difficulty is this, what's called the identification is that we we identify with we we take we think it ha- we think what's happening is mine about me you know we take things so personally you know it's all about me you know and this is where the mind gets very small and very narrow this narrowing of the view the narrowing of the vision so that's all we see we're not able to see this huge vast, boundless mystery in which we are part of which we are. Because the mind gets so fixated on this sense of of ownership that 
that the things get very sticky, you know, and this identification can be thought of as kind of the stickiness of the mind, you know, sticky. things. Everything that arises, we stick to it. You know, it's mine. It's me. It's who I am. And then of the whole personalization that happens around it. And all the dukkha, the suffering, the pain, and all of that. So we're, we want to see what this, um, about this identification. That's very much what we're looking at here. You know, how we take what arises in our, our mind, what, what are, what's happening in our body, in the, emotion, in the emotions, very personally. And then get very upset about it. So, for example, one of the strong patterns that arises a lot is the judgment. You know, this, this part of our mind that was conditioned to uh, undermine or, or be critical or judgmental of how things are, how things are going. And it's very, a very painful condition when that judgment arises and we actually believe it. And this is what's, what happens a lot is, you know, the doubt comes or the judgment comes. And, you know, like, like when the judgment comes that my practice isn't going anywhere. And I listen to what other people are saying and I hear other people's experience and I see that nothing's really happening for me. And that just can feel so sad and so undermining and you know, sort of a sense of just wanting to give up. But it's a completely erroneous view. You know, it's just based on a very particular perception of how I'm interpreting what other people are saying and then comparing it to the way I'm inter- interpreting my own experience and then feeling really bad about what's happening. And it's just a, it's a distortion of the view. So that's the identification. We begin to believe what the mind is telling us. And there can be all kinds of beliefs that we take on. You know, we have this idea of what's beautiful or attractive in, in people, and then we go, well, not me. I'm so unattractive. And then just feel terrible about ourselves because we, we just think that, you know, the beauty is out there, but it's not here. You know, just kind of go through life just feeling so burdened with that belief. Or, or success, you know, that somehow, you know, we look around and there's, the, there's so many successful people, but I've done nothing with my life, you know, and I've tried, and I'm just a failure, and, you know, just, it just feels so heavy, and so kind of, we feel so <clears throat> burdened by it, and unworthy. In a way, what's happening is that we begin to characterize ourselves around a particular belief system or, or, or even a thought. It's like a thought arises in the mind and that's who I am. You know, the thought that comes and say, you're really worth nothing. That's who I am. <laughs> I'm worthless. You are so unlovable. That's who I am. I'm completely unlovable. It's like we become that thought, that one thought. And you can see how, how confining and, and how imprisoning, how narrowing that is when that, that identification, when that stickiness is, is not seen. When there's no, 
no no space when there's no no gap from the awareness that sees that and then just the rising condition it's just that's it that's the way things are and so as we practice and we start to gain some perspective some awareness some consciousness there's actually more space we, we talk about that metaphorically, that there's actually a sense of more space that actually can just lean back a little bit and get some perspective of our mind and what our mind is telling us. And then we can start to question. We, we need to start questioning what's arising in the mind, because if we don't question, that's going to be our reality. That's who we're going to believe that's who I am and we're going to go through the world believing that. And there won't be any challenging of that or questioning of that. And it's really only the awareness that gives us some capacity to begin to challenge because otherwise we're just it. There's no, there's just no, we're just solid. We're just fixated in that perspective, in that perception so as there is some awareness, some consciousness that can open up and look more clearly and more directly, we can begin to investigate and question, is it true? And this is really the, the, how the spiritual understanding begins to develop because we're not taking everything that we see and everything that appears for face value in our own mind, in our bodies, in our emotions, our feelings, all the, all the difficult feelings that go on. You know, well, I'm angry, so I must be a really angry person. Again, that's a characterization. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very fearful, so I'm, I'm a fearful person, and that's the way it is, and that's the way I'm always going to be. It gets very solidified. Those views get very solidified. So, so what, one of the key components in this practice is the investigation into the nature of truth. It's all about what's true, finding out what's really true, and questioning and investigating and challenging this whole way that we perceive this, this mind, body, this world, and particularly, and also others. I mean, not only do we fixate over here, but boy, we fixate over there. <laughs> we are confident that we know who that person is. <laughs> you know, they're just like solid in our, in our perception. And then there's, you know, the way then therefore we relate to them a particular way based on that perception. So sometimes there's not a lot of movement or, 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 or potential possibility for that to change because that relationship is solid. I'm like this, that person's like that, and this isn't going to change. You know, and of course, if, again, if there isn't some investigation, if there isn't some questioning, hopefully together, I mean, ideally, two people can do that together. And as two people start to question and explore some of those fixations that, that we run into together, some amazing things can start to happen. That's a way we can really support each other in relationship, kind of relational practice, when two people are really uh, uh, supporting each other in that inquiry, in that, in that investigation. 
one of the most marvelous things that can happen is that can happen. So we keep breaking down our projections. We break down those, uh, those, those fixations to come more and more into the nature of truth. And as we gain more understanding, there may be a way we begin to think about our experience when we can see more clearly that I am identifying with this, but it's not me. It's just an image in my mind. It's not me. It's just the way my mind is taking form in this minute. And we, we, it's, it, the way the, the mind works is almost like a camera. It's like we take these snapshots of things. You know, we just like the sunset tonight. You know, it's like we take that snapshot and now we've got it imprinted in our mind. You know, it, probably any of us could just kind of think for a moment and you can see the sunset again in your own mind, you know, in different parts of it. And it's kind of imprinted there. Sometimes those imprints stay a long time, sometimes a short time, and as we get older, shorter and shorter. <laughs> those, <laughs> which is actually a good thing when it comes to self-image. <laughs> because maybe that, that, that snapshot will start to break up and dissolve. <laughs> it won't stay so solid. <laughs> But it's like that we have these snapshots of ourself, these images of ourself. It's called self-image, right? We have like a, a self-image that we carry around, and there's actually an image. And you can sometimes refer to that image, you know, through a picture or a thought and say, oh, yeah, I'm like this, but I want to be like that, you know, according to my image. And usually it's an idealized image, you know, something that we've learned or seen or picked up somewhere or our mothers or fathers encouraged us to be and you know so we want to be like that image or whether it's a, a cultural uh, image or wherever magazines you know wherever these images that we they can come from anywhere but they're learned and they're imprinted and so so this we want to begin to see that for what it is there's an image here we can see this as we start to pay more attention, that the, whatever that, that way that the mind is forming some kind of characterization of myself or who I'm taking myself to be, I can begin to see that. You can hear it. You can listen to it. It's this whole thing playing out in the mind through thoughts and images. And then we start to see it. This is not me. <laughs> this is not who I am. This is, these are conditions arising in my mind as judgment, as doubt, as, ide as ideals, as you know, hopes and fears or whatever it is. These are just conditions arising in my mind. So, so it's what's important to to really understand in Buddhism is that we're not trying to get rid of this personality. It's not like there's a problem with this personality. It's not like we're trying to erase it and be nobody or nothing. 
you know, and I think sometimes uh, that's one, something that people get confused about when they hear anatta, you know, which gets, can get translated as no self, you know, that somehow I'm supposed to get to a place where I don't exist anymore, <laughs> you know, or I'm nobody, you know. But it's, it's, you, that's not really possible <laughs> because we are in, we are a human being with a mind and a body and a personality. And as much as we would like to get rid of the personality a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, it was not really possible. Oftentimes at the end of retreats, you know, one of the things that happens is while you're on retreat, you actually don't have to deal with the whole personality that much because the social persona isn't really engaged so much. And we kind of forget this because the personality seems so alive, but when you start to interact again with another person, this whole other part of the personality comes into play and it's like, oh no, <laughs> I thought I got rid of this, you know, things were relatively quiet and under control and I was seeing things pretty clearly and then there's this whole social persona, you know, that comes up and it can be troubling you know, really troubling and frightening. I know at the uh, end of my long retreats in my early years when, when I, we broke silence and we started interacting again, I was just so frightened because I didn't like myself that well. And so the self that came back, the personality that came back was some, a personality that was very unresolved and unintegrated. And so I was pretty freaked out. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, I have to deal with her again, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, other people, you know, are, we, they're also difficult to deal with, but then we have to deal with ourselves as well. So this whole personality issue, you know, it's not like we, we're trying to get rid of that. We're just trying to see our personality and understand it for what it is. In some ways, it's not so personal. <laughs> Our personality isn't so personal. You know, and sometimes when we kind of start to feel that and, and, and take it in a bit, you know, maybe we can have a little bit more fun with our eccentricities and our, you know, kind of um, silliness and, you know, perversions or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, this is kind of what I got. This is what I'm dealing with. So it's really kind of coming into this more, it's more self-understanding, you know, understanding this, how we think of ourselves as small and limited and, and how we keep ourselves caught in these limiting beliefs and ideas about ourselves and seeing them more and more for what they are and asking, perhaps, asking, well, who am I if I'm not bound by these beliefs? Who am I? Who am I as I start to see through some of those patterns of my mind that I have believed and hung on to so dearly as who I am? And maybe if that isn't who I am, 
Well, then, who am I? <laughs> it starts to open something up, this whole new possibility for us. From Emerson. He said, these roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. Isn't that lovely? That simple. In a way, it's the same with all these conditions of mind and body, of heart, of emotions, of feelings. They exist with God today. No separation, not not as separate as we imagine everything to be. This is a story about Ajahn Chah, who is one of our great elders in our traditions, and I mentioned him the other night in the Thai forest tradition. And this is from Ajahn Amaro's book, um, uh, which I can't remember the name of, Small... No, Small... (laughs) You know, Chris. Anyhow, it's from one of his books, which I do have on my book list. So he says... Throughout Ajahn Chah's teaching career, he would pose a number of different questions to people who would visit him. The very last questions he came up with before his health deteriorated were in the form of a little series, Have you ever seen still water? And they would nod, Yes, of course, we've seen still water before. At the same time, they were probably saying inwardly, Now that's a pretty strange question. But outwardly, everyone was very respectful to Ajahn Chah as he was one of Thailand's great meditation masters. Then he would ask, well then, have you ever seen flowing water? And that would also seem a strange thing to ask, but they'd respond respectfully, yes, we've seen flowing water. And then he would say, so did you ever see still flowing water? And they'd say, well, no, we've never seen that. And he loved to get that bewilderment effect. And then Ajahn Chah would then explain that the mind's nature is still, yet it's flowing. It's flowing, yet it's still. The mind of awareness, he would say, itself is totally still. It has no movement It is not related to all that arises and ceases. It is silent and spacious. But sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, thoughts, and emotions flow through that mind of awareness. And our problems arise because the clarity of mind gets entangled with these impressions. And the untrained heart chases these things and takes them as mine. So he says, we train the mind to know those impressions, the sense impressions and the mind impressions, and not get lost in them. Just this, 
is the aim of all this difficult practice. Just this. That the mind of awareness is still. And all these conditions flow through. But the untrained heart chases after them. And we chase because we think they're going to give me something or make me into something, build me up or keep me down, whatever way you want to be. You know, sometimes we feel better being down. Sometimes we feel better being up. Everybody has their own preference. (laughs) You know, but somehow it all goes into that configuration of me. So the same with this personality, you know, the mind, we see the mind, thoughts coming and going, you know, how many thoughts have you had today? (laughs) Thought impressions, (laughs) how many, you know, it's a river, it's a river, it's a stream, a mind stream, we call it the mind stream, flowing through the mind of awareness. A stream, that that mental stream. And all the body sensations, you know, as we see, as we start to feel that this body just isn't just a solid lump. But actually, there's a lot going on, you know. There's all variety of different sensations of pain and pleasure and light and energy and vibrations and aches and pinpricks and you know, tightness and heat and cold and and flowing energy and tight energy. I mean, it's just all kind of very alive. But it's just conditions flowing through this mind of awareness. Not mine. This is not I. This is not myself, the Buddha says. Albert Einstein, very clever fellow, he said, a human being is a part of the whole. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest of the universe, limited in time and space as a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few people nearest to us. And what, what he says here, he says, our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such an achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. Very wise man. I love that part about a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. It wasn't just the Buddha who saw this. John Wellwood, this wonderful psychologist, says, 
Forget about enlightenment. Sit down wherever you are and listen to the wind singing in your veins. Listen to the wind singing in your veins. That's what I was saying last night. Forget about enlightenment. (laughs) Just see what's here, what's singing in your veins right now. But it's really this huge leap to let go. It's a huge leap in consciousness to let go into this vastness, you know, into the boundless consciousness where all things are appearing and disappearing. Because as much as we are identified with our small sense of self, this is going to be frightening, right? Because that's not who I am, and what's that anyhow? What are they talking about? And I don't want to let go. You know, everything's fine here. (laughs) You know, it can feel kind of scary or threatening. So the the funny thing is, though, when this letting go, the true letting go, is really a byproduct of wisdom. Because we let go once we start to sense and feel into the truth that all that I'm holding on to is something that is false anyhow. All of these identifications and these ideas and these beliefs isn't really who I am. So why am I holding on so dearly to that which isn't even true? It's very ironic, you know, kind of a predicament actually. It's the predicament that we're in when we start to wake up to that we're just holding on to an identity or an image that isn't even correct. So, so we start to slowly wake up to that, which, which challenges our fear. Start, the fear starts to loosen up. We start to feel a little bit more secure to take that leap. There's a story about this a blind Frenchman, Jacques Lucien, describes how fear was the only thing that truly prevented him from seeing. He said, Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way that they say bats do. Otherwise, what the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Isn't that interesting? The loss of my what my what the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by the fear. The fear blinded him. 
Otherwise, he didn't feel blind. He was able to navigate. He was able to negotiate his world without the fear. And in the beginning, he said, still there were times when the light faded, which means that when the fear was gone, there was light. His world was filled with light. There may not have been forms and shapes and colors that you get with the eyes that can perceive, but there was light. And the fear is what caused the darkness. And Parker Palmer says, I will always have fears, but I need not be my fears. For I have other places within myself from which to speak and act. I have other places within myself from which to speak and act. And that's what we're trying to feel into. That's what we're getting a sense of. Who am I as I let go of this bound condition? this identified condition where I think I know who I am based on my conceptual framework of my own mind and then how that mind conceptualizes and constructs the whole world. It's the scaffolding for the whole world. Who am I and what is the world without that scaffolding. This is what we want just to sense or feel the possibility, this faith I spoke about, having some faith that maybe things are not as they appear. And then as one great sage said, things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. Get your head around that. (laughs) Right? This great mystery. Questioning. Challenging. And so this is our practice. This investigation. So we don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to sleep, because when we go back to sleep, we go back into what's called these sankharas, or these karmic inclinations, these karmic patterns that have been set in motion over time and reinforced by the identification, by the belief that that's who I am, which can be recognized through the mind, what the mind is telling us what our mind is constructing about ourselves, about others, about the world. Things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in, 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 in Buddhist thought, you know, it's a complete paradox. Everything is in paradox. The mind cannot land in any conclusion about the way things are. As soon as the mind says, oh yeah, well things are are not the way they appear, then we look for that. And then we miss the appearance. (laughs) 
Everything is included. So now I have to decide which one I'm going to end with, because um, they're both wonderful. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Go for the celebration. <laughs> so when I, I, I was in India um, in November, I had a chance to be there for a little while, and one of my favorite um, Hindu uh, images is the Shiva Nataraj. And the Shiva Nataraj, you may have seen it, is a, a, a dancing, a dancing uh, male figure, Shiva, who is surrounded by a circle of flames. And so it's a beautiful statue with um, this dancing figure, and Shiva's foot is on the head of the ego, you know, the head of the, of the ordinary uh, bound uh, ego mind, the one who believes that's the world and that's who I am. And Shiva, the god, is just dancing on top of that corpse, right? It's, it's life, kind of lifeless. And here's the life coming through this god, that the, you know, expressing all of creation in the dance, just dancing, celebrating creation, the divinity, and the flames just radiating out in every direction. And this is uh, something that Michael Adams, a writer, wrote about this and kind of something to provoke us to think about. He said that the Shiva image is not a work of art only. It is a challenge. Shiva Nataraj calls his beholder to awaken from her sleep to know her true nature as God the dancer and so to dance, to know your nature as the dancer and so to dance. We are asked to abandon ourselves, to suffer the joy and the pain and the pity of things, to stand wide to both the wonder and the wreck of the world and fearlessly take part in its turning fearlessly take part in this turning, in this creation. In the words of the carpenter in Alice, Alice in Wonderland, it is asked of us, will you, won't you? Will you, won't you? Will you join the dance? Science now assures us that stones dance as surely as stars. A rock is a slow dancer. <laughs> a flower a little faster but they are equal dancers and equal dances there are no degrees in the dance of life only differences the sea advances and retreats fish do green dances in the deep salmon leap and swallows dip tall poplars dance as much as larks and lyrebirds do the wind makes a dancing girl of the willow and a golden chorus of the wheat. There are many ways of dancing, weird ways and wonderful, strange and simple ways, tender and terrible, innocent and brutal, solemn and bright, muddled and sublime. They are all of the dance equally. Will you 
won't you? Will you, won't you? Will you join the dance? Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.